From Schwartz Media, I'm Ange McCormack. This is 7am. A war is still being waged against Indigenous Australians by a colonial state to this day. That was the vision sketched out by Senator Lydia Thorpe this week in a landmark speech. She says a voice to Parliament would simply be window dressing and an insult to the intelligence of Indigenous Australians still living under violent colonisation. So, is a voice to Parliament really an extension of Australia's shameful past? Or could it help to overcome it? Today, contributor to the Saturday paper and Yorta Yorta man Daniel James on why it's important to listen to Lydia Thorpe, even if you're voting yes. It's Friday, August 18. Thank you very much uh, for allowing me to have a platform to tell some hard truths in this country. Daniel, this week Senator Lydia Thorpe spoke at the National Press Club and she gave the most detail we've heard from her yet of why she's decided to oppose the voice to Parliament. What did she have to say? Today I want to take you on a journey. A journey that talks about my country and my people. She comes from, Lydia comes from the um, perspective of the Black Sovereign Movement that firmly believes that uh, invasion is not over. The uh, colonial experiment is still having a tremendously negative impact on uh, First Nations people. I want to talk about the pain that we are feeling and the fights that we are fighting. And you can hear that in her voice and in her presentation at the National Press Club this week stating the progressive no's case against the referendum and the voice. She recounted her own people's history and particularly the uh, Gunai Kurnai people from uh, Lakes Entrance and East Gippsland in Victoria. And she recalled stories of how um, there would be people back in the day, um, the first days of colonisation, that would go on holidays to what she said, shoot black people. On my grandfather's country, Gunai country, you call it Lake Centrance or the Gippsland Lakes or the 90 Mile Beach when you go on your holidays. It was a sport to shoot blacks. A sport to shoot blacks. Gippsland in particular has a very dark history of massacres and poisonings and um, a whole bunch of other terrible, terrible acts that we'll probably many of us will never know about. How is this not war, Australia? How is this not war? So her mindset in the press club this week was one as though um, Aboriginal Australia is still under siege. And if you look at some of the, the, the major indicators of, you know, incarceration rates, educational attainment, arrest rates, the amount of people that are still dying in custody. My mob... Gunditjmara and Japarung, my grandmother's country, had 70 clans living in peace and harmony pre-colonisation. She come pretty much directly from a birthing tree on Japarung country, which had been spray-painted and um, it would seem poisoned. (sighs) 
The only way I can try to make the rest of the country understand the depth of pain we feel when sacred sites have been attacked is likening, likening it to the death of our mother. Grief, loss, despair. And so you could hear the anger and the emotion in her voice. And that reflected, I think, in the way she presented herself and basically, you know, called out things like the voice as being piecemeal, as being not enough to use an Aboriginal a slang term, a Koori slang term, gammon. And these were things that have been consistent with her approach towards the voice over a number of years. And so that's her mindset, and that's the mindset of the Black Sovereign movement. It's a, a movement that has been born out of radicalism because in the view of that movement, change has been too slow and too piecemeal. And Daniel, can you tell me about how Lydia Thorpe connected that history and that ongoing exploitation to the voice to parliament and her advocacy for a no vote? How does she make that connection? She sees the uh, the voice as buying into the political processes and the political construct of the colony. This country, your system of government, has been built on lies. Lies. And the referendum for the voice to parliament is a continuation of these lies. She refers to sovereignty and that sovereignty of First Nations people has never been ceded and that the voice becoming an advisory body to government in whatever shape the parliament decides that voice actually looks like, she sees that as uh, illegitimate. She sees it as um, a token. It is false hope because it is tricking people into genuinely believing that a powerless advisory body is going to protect our country and sacred sites, save our lives, keep our babies at home. And she sees it as a form of surrender to the colony and to all the um, institutions and, and constructs that come under that. And when we begin to tell the truth that we can heal together as a nation, and from this healing, treaty will bring peace. So I invite you all to walk with me, embark on this journey, stand with our people, stand up for what really matters, demand actual change, not tokenistic gestures. You know, she has indicated in the past that she would be prepared to vote yes if things like recommendations from the Royal Commission into Black Deaths in Custody were implemented. Uh, many of them haven't been implemented. But that's as close as she's ever come to indicating any sort of support. And I think we saw at the National Press Club that her opposition to it remains very, very strong. Mm. And after hearing Lydia Thorpe make these connections of these very real, legitimate wrongs that are still being done today with this political message, on the other hand, that Australians should vote no... What do you make of that? Does one follow the other? I have, I'll, I'll put it on the on the table now, I personally will be voting yes. Um, and polls show that the majority of uh, First Nations Australians support the yes campaign. But I have a tremendous amount of empathy for the Black Sovereignty Movement's position. I have a tremendous amount of empathy for uh, Lydia Thorpe's position. 
what both sides, the yes campaign and the what we are terming, you know, loosely the progressive no campaign, ostensibly they want to get to the same point. They want to get to a truth and treaty process. Now, the ways that um, both sides want to get there are quite different. One can be seen as appeasing government and the colonial structures we have. One denies any sort of sovereignty that those structures have over us as a people. And that's a point that Lydia's looked to raise on a number of occasions, that we've never ceded our sovereignty. She did in the early days of uh, this year, around uh, Invasion Day or Australia Day, whatever you like to call it, uh, question whether the voice would be ceding sovereignty to government. Um, that has since been quashed by uh, the Attorney-General, uh, Mark Dreyfus, and others. But that's the position. One doesn't recognise government. The other recognises government and is putting forward a pragmatic approach, which the Yes campaign says is the start of the conversation, not the end of it. We'll be back in a moment. Hi, I'm Alison Crogan, arts editor for The Saturday Paper. Schwartz Media has launched a new weekly arts and culture newsletter, The Arts featuring cultural criticism, profiles and provocations from the writers behind The Monthly and The Saturday Paper, the arts will be delivered to your inbox every Tuesday. Sign up now at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Daniel, let's talk a bit more about history here because history is really at the core of why people like Senator Lydia Thorpe are opposed to The Voice. What do you think about when you think about the history of Indigenous peoples trying to reach a settlement with the Australian government? Well, I think back to my own people's story, the Yorta Yorta people, and I think called the Maloga Petition. Maloga was uh, an Aboriginal mission set up by two missionaries, uh, Daniel and Janet Matthews, And this petition dating back to 1887 was one of the first formal approaches to the colony of New South Wales, and in particular, the uh, governor of New South Wales, Lord Barrington at the time, requesting a small parcel of their own land, the Yorta Yorta people's land, to clear, to work, to produce wheat, to have cattle and sheep to graze upon, uh, recognising that uh, this 1887, that's probably less than one lifetime after first contact. And the decimation through things like uh, massacres, murders, but in particular um, disease, uh, things like smallpox, had absolutely decimated the community up there as it had elsewhere. Um, you had to things like uh, alcohol and um, the rapes that were uh, often occurring um, between 
white men and, and Aboriginal uh, women and girls. And this petition, this was seen as a way of moving forward and regaining some sort of control of our lives, buying into the new world that they found themselves in. And so in 1887, they wrote a petition to Lord Barrington and it was eventually agreed to by the New South Wales government through the Protection Association that that parcel of land would be given to the people of Maloga at a place that the people of Maloga would end up calling Kamragunja, which means our home in Yorta Yorta. Right. And so the government at the time agrees to this, to hand this parcel of land to the Yorta Yorta. But thinking about this history of how governments have treated their promises to Indigenous people, that wasn't the end of it, was it? Well, the Malogra and Kamragunja is a very good example because they did clear the land. Um, I can only imagine what the old people um, and you know, some of the younger people would have thought of you know, losing the forestation around uh, Kamragunja, having those trees felled and seeing the habitat that had looked after their people for so long being decimated to buy into this new way of thinking, um, farming in particular. What Cumbergunja shows us is that they were given the land, but as the Aborigines Protection Association became more centralised in its power, the further it was away from the decision-making processes and the people it was making decisions about. Uh, Local farmers and pastoralists in the district started making representations to the New South Wales government and their voices were heard over that of the Aboriginal people. And so eventually, within 10 years or so, the land was taken back from the people at Kamragunja and given back to the government, which had it as crown land, which was eventually sold off back to some of the pastoralists and farmers in the area. So it was a broken promise, but it was a decision-making process that was made by people far away from Kamragunja who couldn't readily understand the impact it was making on people on the ground. And from my perspective, one of the things that The Voice has going for it is the representational structure that has been outlined by Marcia Langton and others that has a regional representation feeding up into that central voice that will speak directly to power. Because history, the history of Aboriginal affairs in Australia shows The further away decision-makers are away from communities, the worse the outcomes. Mm. And I guess it's easy to see, looking at all of this history, why someone like Lydia Thorpe looks at The Voice as just another example of a policy brought forward by a colonial government. She sees it in that tradition. But I guess you're saying you believe those injustices can actually be an argument for The Voice. Yeah, exactly. And again, if I refer back to my own people, Yorta Yorta, we had some of the, the greatest advocates in the Aboriginal movement come from my mob, people like William Cooper, Sadak Nichols, Auntie Margaret Tucker, who, after setback after setback, uh, such as uh, what happened at Cameron Gunja, and subsequently to that, uh, never stopped in their advocacy. They kept on chipping away. There was a uh, a pragmatism to them, and I think they also believed all having converted to Christianity, they all believed that there was a divine right, that the justice of this was so plain and simple for everyone to see that if they kept chipping away at the edifice of governments and all its guises, that one day they would prevail and get what they want for their people, to have their people 
given some of their land back, given the justice that they deserve, not to be treated any differently to the white man. So that's the perspective I take. But the reason I'm empathetic to the Black Sovereign Movement is, well, have a look at all the broken promises. You know, have a look at all the things that have been waved in the front of Aboriginal people's faces and then taken away. Have a look at the inaction around black death and custody. Why would you want to deal with these people um, from an Aboriginal perspective? Because people like Lydia Thorpe and many like her, their perspective is, well, they can't be trusted and they're still trying to kill us. So it's amazing how history, what perspective you look at it from, can very much inform and teach you about what's happening today here in 2023. But when you have the Yes campaign supported by uh, the government of the day, governments across Australia and a large swathe of corporate Australia, and you have a Conservative No campaign that um, they are funded and they're well-backed, it's going to be very difficult for uh, the Black Sovereign Movement to get a say in that, no matter how strong or poignant their arguments might be. Daniel, thanks so much for your time today. Pleasure. Winnie Dunn has made a career out of helping others find their literary voice, and now it's her turn in the spotlight. This week on Read This, join me, Michael Williams, as I chat with Winnie about her debut. Find it wherever you listen. Also in the news today, the unemployment rate has risen, with Australia losing more than 14,000 jobs in the month of July. The report from the Australian Bureau of Statistics shows that despite unemployment rising, monthly hours worked increased 0.2%. And Telstra has announced a record annual profit of $2.1 billion. Despite record profits, the company defended the rollout of price increases for consumers. Since July, the average Telstra phone plan has gone up by $4 per month. 7am is a daily show from The Monthly and The Saturday Paper. It's produced by Cara Jensen-McKinnon, Zoltan Fetcho, Shane Anderson, Yo Chung and Sam Loy. Our senior producer is Chris Dengate. Our technical producer is Atticus Basto. Our editor is Scott Mitchell. Sarah McVie is our head of audio. Eric Jensen is our editor-in-chief. Mixing by Andy Elston, Travis Evans and Atticus Basto. Our theme music is by Ned Beckley and Josh Hogan of Envelope Audio. From Shorts Media, I'm Ange McCormack. See you next week.